We are quickly approaching the end of our study through the book of Esther, and it has been a good study. I've enjoyed looking at the life of Esther and, and more importantly, focusing on the way that God has intervened in a miraculous way through history. We oftentimes make reference to God's sovereignty. Especially in the church, we, we should be making reference to God's sovereignty. We should be talking about the fact that our God has all things in control. As a matter of fact, one of the answers to the Baptist Catechism ends with saying that nothing happens except through Him and by His will. That means that everything that happens in the world today, everything that happens in our life, happens according to God's will. Everything that happens, happens because God makes it happen. Now, there is some trouble to that statement. We have to also acknowledge then that not only whenever good things are happening, is it happening according to God's will, but also when what seems to be bad, what seems to be a struggle, what seems to be a, a temptation, or what seems to be a failure, or what seems to be corruption, that these things also happen through Him and by His will. We confess that God is not the author of evil, but we say that all things, including evil that we see in this world, happens by His will and through Him. Are we talking out both sides of our mouth when we say that? So far, I haven't even begun preaching. I'm simply introducing the doctrine of the church. The sovereignty of God, while a profound and while a, an interesting and a stirring and an exciting and even a comforting doctrine, carries with it more weight than we could possibly grapple with. Last week we had a guest preacher, Brother Gary Fitzpatrick, came and filled the pulpit for us, preaching from Romans 8.28. I did not tell him we were going through a study of the book of Esther, or that we were going through a study that even focused on God's sovereignty. As a matter of fact, the direction I gave him was... Preach God's Word as He leads you. And He chose to go to Romans 8.28. For we know that all things happen for the good of those who believe in God. That's a misquote, Derek quote. But, um, but that is what Romans 8.28 conveys. He preached on God's sovereignty. We've been looking through an entire book, ten chapters so far on God's sovereignty. Who do you think made that happen? Was that the administrative prowess of a pastor? That was God's sovereignty at work right before us. I said nothing to him, and yet he preached on God's sovereignty, a consistent theme that we've been looking through for the past ten sermons that I've preached through Esther. This will be the eleventh. What I say to you, though, is that we, what we are communicating when we talk about God being sovereign in all affairs of this world is really more comprehensive than even what Romans 8.28 says in saying that all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who has, called, who has been called according to His purpose. We're saying more than God is on the side of those who have come to trust Him. We're saying that in relationship to the nations and in the, the placement of the planets, in everything that we can observe and even those things which go unobserved, that God 
is at the core. The very existence of science, the very written record of history and geography are all through God and by His will. What we are affirming is what John writes in John 1.3, that all things were made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. What Paul writes to the church in Colossae in Colossians 1.17, that he is before all things and by him all things consist. What we are saying when we talk about God's sovereignty is that we serve a bigger God than we could possibly begin to imagine. I say all of that because we come to Esther chapter 9 this morning. And I have no idea how to preach this chapter. There's questions I have in looking at Esther chapter 9. I see vengeance. Uh, I, I struggle to view the narrative of Esther and overcoming the Jewish enemies in the Persian Empire without looking at it with some sort of 2023 moral spectacles on. My great concern as your pastor is that even though we admit that God is sovereign, even though we think biblically, even though we can tolerate explanations of how big God is in light of wickedness in this world, is that we still continue to live our lives as if they have no purpose. We view our lives as having a beginning and having an end, but no purpose. We see the events that have conglomerated to make us who we are as nothing but a hodgepodge canvas of our life with no relation to themselves except for the fact that they all happened to us. But you see, we confess that God is in every detail. We believe that the Bible teaches that everything that happens in this world is according to God's will. You want to talk about incongruities in the way that we think, the way that we act, and the way that we believe. Believe in a sovereign God and think your life purposeless. I can think of nothing more incongruent. This God did not design you without purpose, but He has designed you with a great purpose. We must ask, even in beginning to look at the book of Esther, not to insert ourselves into the book, but to understand what it says about our lives today. With that said, let us begin reading in Esther chapter 9. We won't finish the whole chapter, but we will go more than halfway to verse 19. Father in heaven, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we turn to your word. Help us to understand it, to exhort us, and to encourage us. Help your word to be alive in us as we respond to it and know how to live it out in our lives. Help us to be a people of such sincerity and integrity that what we believe and what we confess is seen in the way that we act and the way that we behave. God, if we believe that sinners will not come to know you unless a messenger of the gospel brings your truth to them. Let us be a people that act and behave as though we were those called messengers. 
God, if we believe that you are sovereign, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice in everything that happens in our life because we know that it has happened according to your will. Father, give us understanding as we turn to your word this morning. Help us to know what we should do from here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Bible says, Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Pershadatha and Dalphon and Esphatha and Poratha and Adelia and Eridatha and Paramashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also in the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from the enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Hopefully you see that I really don't know how to preach this passage. 
just by reading it out loud together. There's a lot of details about the, the revenge that took place. There's some interesting insight into Esther as she asks, makes a second request to King Ahasuerus. And then there's a party at the end. I mean, this is a odd little section of, of the story of Esther. I said last, well, two weeks ago, whenever we were looking at the book of Esther, that we had come and we had arrived at the good part. But perhaps this is actually the end of that climax, the actual resolution to all of the problems. Let me give you this morning three points that will help to frame our conversation. First, what we're looking at in Esther chapter 9 is the conclusion of God's great reversal. His reversal. This has been a theme throughout all of Esther that God is able to take things and no matter how awful they look, He's able to reverse the situation and prove His sovereignty. Second, we have to look at a great evil. That's exciting. There's a great evil. Finally, we end with a great joy. I said that this section of Scripture ends with a party, a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday, as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Three points. A great reversal, a great evil, and a great joy. If you need to remember that, you can just say Rej. Let's look at a great reversal. First of all, let us make note that some time has passed as we come to the beginning of Esther chapter 9, beginning with now we are in the month of Adar, the twelfth month of the year on the Hebrew calendar. And what's happening in the month of Adar, but the original edict that began this story said that this is the day that everyone in Persia can kill the Jews. And we, make, we say that, and oftentimes we make Haman out to be the bad guy, but we should really acknowledge People were on board with this plan. This edict came out and they were like, sounds good to me. Even after the fear of the Jews fell upon the people, still there were how many? 75,810? That might be preacher math, but 500, 300, the 10 sons of Haman, and then 75,000, so 75,810. People were killed. So this is after the fear of the Jews had fallen on the people, there were still at least 75,810 people who wanted to kill the Jews. Even after Haman was dead, there were still 75,810 people in the Persian Empire that wanted to kill them. Remember that the edict that Esther and Mordecai sent out did not permit the Jews to go out and kill whoever they didn't like. Their edict was to defend themselves. Right? For the Jews to have been honest to the edict that went out, and to have killed that many people meant that all of these were people that, that hated them. But, but what do we see in this great reversal? Chapter, verse 1 begins that in this month the king's command went out and it was on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to gain mastery over them. But what? The reverse occurred. They had hoped to gain mastery over them. We have to understand looking at this, the Jews were not a strong or prominent people. As a matter of fact, they are in the Persian Empire by conscription, right? Did they choose to be here? Did they immigrate here? No. Come on, think back. Think back. In biblical history, the Jews were in Jerusalem. The Babylonians conquered them. The Persians conquered Babylon. And the Jews are still in Persia. King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, as he's more commonly known in history, 
They are in a particular place in a particular time, not by choice. They didn't immigrate to the Persian Empire. They were here by conscription because they were slaves. They were imprisoned. They were inherited loot for the Persians when they conquered Babylon. They weren't a prominent people. They didn't have a place in high society. They didn't have influence. They didn't have, not only is it a monarchy, but if there was any influence to be gained, and there normally is even in monarchies, they did not have any rights. We've already seen God's reversal beginning in taking Queen Esther and taking her from a lowly Jew and making her queen of the Persian Empire. We've seen this reversal take place in Mordecai who was weeping at the gates of the temple in sackcloth to being paraded through the citadel with royal robes on a horse that the king himself had rode on. We see this great reversal that even though the Jews were the underdogs, the reverse occurred, says verse 2. The Jews gained, sorry, verse 1 still, the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in cities throughout the provinces and they laid hands on those who sought their harm. No one could stand against them. Here's the great reversal. Even though they were the underdog, there was no one that could stand against the Jews. Why? Because fear had fallen on the people. I see that verb fallen and I, I almost have to pause and ask myself. Now, it's not in the text, but, but stick with me. If it fell from somewhere, where did it fall from? It fell from God. Working through His sovereignty in the hearts of the people of Persia to put fear in their hearts. It used to be in day and time, if you read old books or read from old dead fellas, which I, I enjoy. I like, I like my dead friends more than my living friends a lot of times. But if you read from old dead fellas, what you will find is that there was a time not too long ago in the culture that we live in where people feared God-fearing people. There was a time not long ago when Christians were respected for being Christians, even by those who weren't Christians. There was a time not long ago, perhaps even in some of you, my older friends, you can remember this in your childhood, when the church was respected because it was a place where God's people met. I'm not saying necessarily I want to go back to that cultural, moral righteousness, whatever it is, but I certainly would like it if people would quit pooping outside of the church. That would be a nice start. You didn't know about that? That's not a ridiculous story. That really happened here. The fear of God fell on the peoples and the provinces. We read in chapter 8 that even to the extent that some of these people, because of fear of the Jews, if you look at chapter 8, verse 17, many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The fear of God fell on these people and he is totally in control, even working in his sovereignty through the hearts of those who didn't even believe in him because they saw the blessing of God before them. There's more explanation given in Verse 3, as we look at the fact that the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, all these royal agents, these people of prominence who did have influence in the land, saw Mordecai rising to position and power and saw him as a Jew and recognized that God was on his side. Even Haman's own wife, whenever she saw that, that Haman was starting to 
lose interest. She said, if the Jews who you've done this to, if God is on their side, you will surely fall before them. The people see this. They see God's blessing on God's people. These royal officials, all of these people feared Mordecai and they had, what did they do in verse 4? Because he was great in their house, he grew more and more powerful. They supported the Jews. Now these satraps, these governors, all of these officials supported their Jews as they sought to defend themselves. The Jews, verse 5, struck their enemies with the sword, killing, destroying, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. On the first day in Susa, basically the capital city of the Persian Empire, the citadel, they killed 500 men. In the regions beyond them, they killed 75,000 men. Look at the reversal that takes place. For all of this to happen, the day that the Jews would die became the day that the Jews were preserved. It looked as if the odds were against them, but they gained mastery over those who were their enemies. No one feared the Jews, but the fear of God had fallen on all peoples. The elite were in support of Haman, and now they were in support of Mordecai. All the Jews were being killed and removed from the earth, but in a reversal, Haman's ten sons were killed and hung on the gallows. By the way, that list, when I was reading that, I heard everyone kind of breathe in and then breathe out as I finish that list. I know it's difficult to pronounce, but there's a reason these ten names are listed out here. This is the progeny of Haman. His goal in sending out this first edict was to eradicate the Jews, not just from the Persian Empire, but from the world. He hated them so much he wanted them completely gone. We mentioned this on an evening night service because it's easier to discuss some of these things uh, with a smaller crowd. But Haman's father, Hamadetha, is a descendant, and it gives us an insight that he was an Amalekite. Going back to 1 Samuel, the people of Israel were given a command to annihilate the Amalekites whenever they took the promised land. But Saul, King Saul, failed. First of all, he kept the king alive. Second of all, he looted the plunder. Two things God told him not to do. He said, kill everyone. He kept one alive. He said, don't loot them. And then he looted the plunder anyway. And the Amalekites have been a thorn in Israel's flesh ever since then. They've been attacking them ever since then. There's been these kinds of problems throughout history. And now we kind of see it on a grand scale between Haman and the Jewish people through the narrative of Esther. We see the great reversal. The people of Israel originally failed in 1 Samuel to keep God's command. But look at it carried out perfectly here in Esther. All ten sons of Haman are killed. While Haman meant that all the Jews would be removed from the earth, it turned out that all of his progeny were removed from the earth. I mentioned that there is a small issue of justice in looking at this, especially as we look at a verse... I didn't put it in my notes and I can't find it. Where it says that the Jews did as they pleased. The Jews did as they pleased, killing them with the sword. I think it's verse 5. Did as, yeah, verse 5. And did as they pleased to those who hated them. There's a question of justice, I think, here. 
I, I grew up with uh, all of my teachers in school telling me that two wrongs don't make a right. I grew up in the... Now, my parents, when they grew up, if somebody hit you on the playground and you hit them back, the person that hit you got in trouble, but you didn't get in trouble. When I was going to school, that changed. And so when I was growing up, if somebody hit you on the playground and you hit them back, you both got in trouble. And I don't know what it is now. You'd probably get expelled from school for even balling a fist, I think. I don't, but um, not trying to provide any commentary, but there's a question of justice, and certainly it's changed. And I bring that up just to illustrate that our concept of justice has changed. Jesus commented on this. I don't think we're too far off from it. Jesus made reference to the Levitical law. He said, For you have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, making reference history buffs. That was Hammurabi's code, but it was also recorded in the book of Leviticus as a law for the people, as a form of justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Personally, I think that's a good form of justice in a wicked world because it not only sets a clear indictment for what the consequences of doing something wrong against someone is, but it also protects that person from Cruel and unusual punishment. If you take someone's eye, I'm not going to cut your head off. That'd be excessive. I'm only taking one eye. There's also a form of protection there. Let me finish the quote from Jesus. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, if a brother slaps you on the right side, turn and offer him the left. How do we understand these two ideas biblically? More specifically, how do we understand justice in the book of Esther? Can we just admit that it was different than it is today? Is it enough just to say that their culture was different than our culture is today? I think that's fair. We see something remarkable. In the two edicts that went out, the one that Mordecai wrote, it perfectly matched what Haman had written whenever his first command went out to kill all of the Jews including Haman wrote that they were able to plunder the Jewish people's possessions. But on the concept of justice, there's a phrase repeated in our passage. Over, actually three times, I see this phrase repeated. They did not plunder. The enemy, verse 10, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. See that two more times if we would keep reading. I think in the concept of justice, what I see is that the Jews were focused on preserving themselves, on self-preservation, on self-defense. And they did not take the plunder of the people as they were given God's blessing in the world. Why? I think it's the same thing that Abraham said to his father-in-law when he said, Do not give me anything because I do not want you to say that I made him rich. The Jews didn't want to say that they had survived because they had attacked their enemies Rather, what I see is it's God. And because of the decision not to plunder their enemies, the 75,810 people that were killed, because of that, when we read this story, we do not read of the Jews' military prowess. We do not read of the Jews' ability to defend themselves. What we find is we find a weak people, incapable of doing things on their own, who are preserved by God. It all comes back to this great theme of reversal in God's sovereignty. Christians today, I think one of the ways that we can apply this to our lives is that we cannot rely on our own ingenuity for success, health, or even strength in the church, even an influence that the church has in the world. 
I would love for the world to be so influenced by the church, not only that they would respect it, as I've mentioned already, but also that they would at least, at the very least, conscribe themselves to the laws that God has given us because they are good. But I don't think a theocracy is going to help the world. There's a reason the prophet Jeremiah said that in order for the word of God to have real fruit, it had to be given to us in a heart transplant. He said, I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. There's a reason for that. Because it requires real transformation. While the world might be moving farther and farther away from cultural Christianity, and the days of cultural Christianity may be moving beyond us, the church must not overreact to these trends. In order for the church to be successful, we cannot, what we often do and what we often read about and the schemes that I often see are churches that want to pick up the newest and latest book on marketing schemes so that they can find out how to make themselves more attractional. I think this is foolishness. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a Facebook event whenever you're holding something. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a flyer to share with your friends what's going on at your church. But what I do think is when we think that that is the replacement for personal evangelism. I think the church has been doing just fine for 2,000 years at calling people who are actually called by God. You know what I think happens when we put too much attention on attracting the world to us? We end up attracting a bunch of goats rather than God's sheep. That's tough work for a pastor. I heard sheep are pretty pliable and they're pretty stubborn, but, but I would much rather work with a bunch of sheep than a bunch of goats. I haven't spent that much time on the farm, but the time that I have spent, I would rather spend time with sheep than goats. What happens when we become so focused on doing things our way or with the ingenuity that is inside of us or with our own skills and our own strengths and our own abilities? By the way, some people say it's a spiritual gift. If it's not coming from God, it's not a spiritual gift. You might be good at administration, but if it's not coming from God, that just means you're good at administration. That's not a spiritual gift. You might be good at encouraging people, but if it's not coming from God, that's not a spiritual gift. You're just telling people what to do. You might be good at preaching God's word, but if it's not coming from God, that's not a spiritual gift. I'm worried I've jumped down too many rabbit holes and I've lost you all. Let me try to refocus. I believe the application that we see in this great reversal that God has done in the days of Esther can be seen in the church. When it seems like everything is against us, when the world is no longer working alongside us, we cannot look into ourselves for the answer. The answer is in God. It is in the authentic and genuine worship of God. When God is worshiped genuinely, goats go away because they don't have time for it and they're not interested in it. Let them go. When God is worshipped authentically, the sheep are attracted because God's people, His children, those called by His name, those who are blessed, those who are coming to Him, want to be around God's people. The church doesn't need a change. 
God needs to be glorified all the more. We need to return to our roots and we need to seek him for the answer. I said that there's a great reversal. The next points I'll have to move faster on. But I said there's also a great evil. Dealing with this issue of self-defense, the number of people that the Jews killed, these people who are bloodthirsty for annihilation despite the fear of God, there is real evil to be seen here. There is real evil in our world today. Real wickedness. I think sometimes, I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure what happens. and I might need you to help me out. So maybe if you're taking notes, say this better than I could possibly say it with my mouth. Say it the way that you would. I don't know whether we protect ourselves by becoming callous to the wickedness in this world and pretending that we don't care. Or we allow ourselves to be blind because we would rather be ignorant. There's a movie I was watching a while ago about the Holocaust. And it followed the story of a father and a son. And there were two scenes that really stood out to me. The first one was the father, as they were coming up, they saw on the wall painted, no Jews, no pigs. Or no dogs, no Jews, no dogs. And the son, a little boy, he was maybe six or seven years old, asked the father, why, do, why is that up there? And the father, these stories are so much harder to think about as a father, aren't they? What do you say as a dad to your son when he asks you that? The father says, oh, don't worry about it. Some people don't like things. And he kind of draws a, a, this picture that goes something like, well, in that store, they don't like Spaniards or horses. And so no Spaniards or horses are allowed there. And over there, you know, and he gives them three examples. And he said, they just don't like them. Later on in the movie, when, whenever they are, whenever the boy realized what's taking place in some of the internment camps, his feet are dangling from the rafters and he's speaking to his dad and he says, dad, they make soap and buttons out of us. How easy is it to not think about how evil the world actually is? We live in a world, and by the way, guys, that's only three generations away from me. When human beings were making soap and buttons out of other human beings... Racism still exists in our world today. We see those things as far away and we say, I'm glad I'm not like those people. What was Jesus' point whenever he said, you've heard that it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, if somebody slaps your right side, turn it off for them the left. What was his point? He went on too, didn't he say? Didn't he continue in the Sermon on the Mount to say, not only is this principle there, but I say to you, you've heard that it is a sin. Do not murder. I say to you, if you have hate in your heart, you have already murdered your brother. We see these things as far away from us and we see ourselves as maybe a little bit flawed because sometimes we get a bitter attitude and we fail to face the fact that the wickedness that exists in this world is inside of man's heart, inside of the flesh. It already is in us. There is real evil that we must come to confront. Thank God for the theme of reversal through this because that is the only way that we have true joy. 
In the day of Esther, 75,810 people wanted to kill the Jews even though God was on their side. There was a second day. Did they relent? No. 300 more people were killed in Susa the citadel. There is real evil inside of the heart of man that we must confront. And the joy of God's sovereignty is that He takes that evil and He redeems it. We sang joy to the world this morning as we began to worship. And there's a reason for that. First of all, I'm ready for Christmas to be here. I wore Christmas socks last week and no one noticed. I'm ready for Christmas to be here. Second of all, that song, as, as Brother Stewart mentioned, is not actually a song about, about Christ's first incarnation. It wasn't about His first advent. It's about His second advent. It's a reflection on Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. And the world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He has come to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equality or with equity. Joy to the world. The day that Christ will return. I, I, I've, I've been getting frustrated with myself. Let me take pause for a second. I've still got enough time. I'm not running over on time. And I'm almost finished. So just pause for a second and refocus. I've been making a joke about end times the last two Sundays. Well, not so much a joke, but I've been saying things I wouldn't normally have said. I get that it has rubbed some of you the wrong way. I don't really care about that. I think it's funny. I've got to grow up some, so pray that I'll become more mature. But on that note, how many people have spent time actually studying the end times? Not many. The reality is when we think of the second advent of Christ, it's something far-fetched in our mind. Regardless of what you believe about the order of things, what we are supposed to be celebrating is the fact that Christ will return. There will be a great reversal I live as if it would be in my day, and you should live, according to the Bible, as if it will be in your day. Because what the Bible tells us is that the coming of Christ is imminent. And when He comes, all the people of God will sing joy to the world. The oceans will sing joy to the world. All things will sing God's praises, and it will be a marvelous day for us to reflect on. That means that if you're living like that in your life today, if you're looking at the book of Esther and you're wondering, how can I apply this historical narrative to my life? What you should see is even though the odds are against you, God has already offered you a lot in the way of reversal by giving you a new heart. Second, even though the odds are against you, you should also be waiting imminently for Christ to return. When the world will repent of their wickedness, when such evil that we are faced with no longer blinds us, but we are able to look honestly, frankly, to 
recognize the gravity and demonic nature of what it means to live in a sinful and rebellious world where men are utterly opposed to God and His goodness. Because we will all be singing joy to the world. You know, I would love to, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of losing somebody that I love to, the, to death, or in the midst of being faced with evil in this world, or even just having someone not like me, I think that's sin if you don't like me. No, I'm just kidding. I think, I think you can have a personal preference to not like me. But there's a difference between hating someone and being bitter. That's sin. That's something that needs to be repented of. That's something that needs to be left with God. I would love in the midst of those times to sing, Great is thy faithfulness. You know that song. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, you know the song I'm talking I'm not going to sing it for you. It's a joyful song. It lifts us up. It's a reflection on Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 24 that read, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for Him. But did you know before verses 22... Came verse 17. Do you know what the author of Lamentations is writing about in Lamentations chapter 3? He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. There is great joy at the end of Esther chapter 9 as the people who are of Jewish descent join together with feasting and gladness. There's some explanation about why there's two dates for Purim, but, but we'll just move past that and worry about that another day. They join together for joy and gladness, not just because of the, their deliverance, not just because they have something to celebrate, but they join together for joy and gladness because they recognize that their God is sovereign over all things, even their conscription in the Persian Empire, even the position that they were in, even the hardship that you are facing today. God is in control. Are we like those, like, like, who wrote Lamentations? Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah, writing in chapter 3, that his life has been like chewing gravel. And only in a few short verses, he changes directions and he says, because of your compassions that fail not, I hope in the Lord. How is it that we can keep our minds focused on the joy of God? Because this is ultimately the question that I, I, I'm trying to drive home, and, and I think I'm failing. Maybe I'm not doing a good job at it, but how do we really face God's sovereignty? Has it become just a church truism to say that God is in control? Do you really believe it? Do you think that God is at work in everything in your life? I mean, from the position of the planets to that time you stubbed your toe because a toy was left a little too far to the left. 
God's in control of the big and the small with equal measure. That's how big He is. He takes our blindness towards evil and He allows us to see it. This is the beginning of the gospel working in our lives. He takes our blindness towards evil and allows us to see it. By His mercy, we are faced with our own condition and able to recognize how impoverished we are, how impossible it is for us to save ourselves. By His mercy, we see that we need a Savior. And by His grace, He has placed the moment of atonement at a fixed point in history, at the cross on a hill. The day that Jesus died, He made it possible. He has taken our helplessness and He's reversed it and given us help. He's helped us in giving us a Savior. He has taken what is spiritually dead inside of us as a consequence of being born to a sinful father and inheriting sinfulness that has been passed from one generation since Adam all the way down to you and I and even your progeny, even my progeny. And He has made it alive. If you believe the gospel, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, the Bible teaches us that He has taken what is dead inside of you and made it alive. He has taken our enemy who once held us in bondage to sin and He has given us over to a new nature. You know the real story of the gospel? (laughs) Is that we become alive to walk with Jesus Christ. We'll sing a song of invitation and I'll ask you to reflect on this question. Are you still dead? There's reversal waiting in the gospel. From all the hardship, everything that you're facing, you can be on the side of of a victor. The only hard news is there's nothing you can do to choose to be on His side. He works in His sovereignty in your heart, giving you the ability to understand that you need Him. I believe that if this morning you understand what I'm saying about you needing a Savior, I believe this morning that is the Spirit of God at work regenerating your heart, beginning to put life inside of you. And God is waiting for you to make a confession, a proclamation. God wants you to say, not only do I believe that, but I am born again. I'm a child of God. I am new. I may not be perfect this very moment, but He's working in me and He'll be faithful to continue working in me. Just as He was faithful in the day of Esther, He'll be faithful all the days of my life. That's my prayer for you this morning. Would you reflect on that? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you for answering our prayer, giving us understanding and insight. Lord, help us now as we respond and as we reflect. God, I pray that if there are any who have never made a public proclamation of their faith in you, Lord, that they would do so. I know how easy it is, God, to walk as a quote-unquote Christian and to have never had made that profession before. Help us to rejoice, God, in your church that, that we would celebrate new life that is coming. New life that is coming as a consequence of your divine and sovereign work. Move in us, Lord, as we sing this song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?